This is the Commonwealth City Church Podcast. Thanks for listening. Commonwealth is a church in Lexington, Kentucky. For more info, visit our website at commonwealthcitychurch.com and follow us on Instagram at comcitychurch. We hope you enjoy the message. And so today we're going to be in, going to continue on in John 16. We're going to have a moment like later in the month because we're kind of on this weird college schedule where a lot of our familiars are not here right now because they're still on winter break. And so later in the month, we're going to do like the obligatory kind of vision, new, some things to put up in front of us, vision casting moments. We're going to do that actually not the first Sunday in January, but closer to the last Sundays in January as we have our whole family back together. And just some cool things that we'll be inviting you into um, for, for 2020, specifically the spring semester of 2020. But until we get there, we're going to keep trucking along in John chapter 16. And so I would invite you to stand with me, if you will, John 16, 5 through 15. And so stand with me as we read the word of the Lord. I'm going to keep you standing for just a second because I've decided that sometimes we don't do enough why behind the what. And actually this week at the conference we were at, we were reminded of this. I was reminded of this text of why we stand up to read the word of God. Like, is that, you know, what is, what kind of weird tradition is that? If you look back through the history of the word of God, and its care and its centrality in the people of God, starting all the way back in the Old Testament, you come across this story as a guy named Nehemiah has rebuilt the city of Jerusalem. And Ezra, the chief scribe, who a lot of people think is responsible for most of the canonization, which is what we would call the compilation of the Old Testament, Ezra stands up with the word of the Lord and he speaks it out and it says, and all the people stood. I don't know if you've ever heard good news that makes you just want to get up out of your seat. But that's what we do when we open this word, is it's good news. Now, you're allowed to sit, and if you want to spontaneously stand up and be like, right on, you can do that, okay? Like, you can do that. You're allowed. We'll just take the seats out of here for future Sundays, and we'll just have a standing service. I'm joking. We're not going to do that. But we're going to read John chapter 16, verses 5 through 15 the word of the Lord this morning. But now I'm going to him who sent me. This is Jesus speaking. And none of you ask me, where are you going? Because I've said these things to you. Sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me lo- no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He, the spirit, will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and he will declare it to you. And all that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and he will declare it to you. That's the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we just thank you so much for um, the truth of this scripture today. We thank so much for the promise, um, the certainty we have, a helper that is with us. We're not left as orphans. We're not left on an island. Uh, We have the, the absolute certainty of a helper that is with us, that you sent as a gift, as a provision, as a hope, as a promise to us. And God, I pray that um, today as we unpack your word, Lord, that you just with clarity and with precision 
invite us into the places that we might battle unbelief. Invite us into the places where, where we might see the helper as someone as a, in a quest for our righteousness. Invite us into places um, where we recognize your plan and your provision for us uh, to glorify your name. Lord, I just pray that, that today is a, a simple truth. I pray that I get out of the way so that the louder second sermon that the Holy Spirit is preaching is declared rightly. In your holy and precious name, we ask these things. Amen. You guys can be seated. Unless you want to, you know, stay standing like Nehemiah. You certainly can. I do want you to know that, though. I want you to know why we do some of the things we do. It's not just some silly church tradition. Stand up, you know, but it's, gosh, there's something in the moment that makes people proclaim with an honor of, like, I want to I stand. So that's why we stand. Uh, context of what's going on here. This is the back end of what's called the upper room discourse. It's, it's John 13, 14, 15, 16. And then it kind of subtly gets into 17, even though he starts to change geographies a little bit in this process. Uh, it kind of is the last few chapters of Jesus' final words, final commissioning um, through the authorship of John to his disciples. It's what the Holy Spirit we're talking about today, the helper, directed John to acknowledge as like a final commissioning that we might believe. Remember, we've said this time and again that the, the thesis statement for John actually happens later when it says in John chapter 20 that, that he writes these things so that you might believe and you might have life in his name. That that's the whole purpose of the book of John. It's not a, a narrative history, much like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but it is a discourse. It is a almost like a thesis on this, there is a God that, that became flesh, we just celebrated this at Christmas, born in a manger so that we might know God is with us and that he might lead us to the understanding that God came to save humanity from their sins, for us to believe that he's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the sent one. So the context here is Jesus is kind of talking to his disciples for what they don't understand, but what they're getting ready to recognize is one of the last moments. It's one of the last times. And I want you to think about kind of where we are. Jesus uses this phrase in verse 7. He, he kind of leads off in, in verse 5 and 6, and then ultimately gets to verse 7, where he says things like, but I'm going to him who sent me. Because I've said this, sorrow will fill your hearts. Nevertheless, I tell you, it's to your advantage that I go away. Now think about that for a minute. Jesus is their ultimate, like, helper for the last three years of their life. Like, these guys that were once fishermen, tax collectors, um, you know, weren't running the family business, kind of, kind of lesser thans, kind of uh, uh, guys that were picked over. They weren't first picks for anything, for kickball or for rabbinical school. They were kind of the, 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 the afterthought. And Jesus saw them. He called them. He identified them. He Powered them. They had been on these journeys where they'd been sent out to people. Uh, they, they, had, they had seen dead be raised and the, the sick healed and the blind see. Like, if they sang Amazing Grace back then, it would all be from actual instances. You know, I, I once was blind and now I saw They'd be like, yeah, I know that guy. You know, like, I know Bartimaeus. Like, what's up, Bart? You know, how you doing? It wouldn't be a Simpsons character. You know, like, they, they saw this stuff, and if you can think for a minute, he's telling them that he's going away, and he can infer and even probably recognize that there's sorrow on their face. This is like the breakup moment. You know, when, when you start the conversation across from a, a, someone that you've been dating, and, and it's like you kind of know where it's going, and the face starts to show, and it's like, oh, no, 
please no. You know, like, is this really happening? I feel like that's kind of the, the image that we get with the disciples here is, is that they feel a little bit like Jesus is having kind of a, uh, we need to see other people kind of conversation. Now, ultimately, he's not saying that, but, but I feel like that's what they're, and, but then he hits them with, but it's to your advantage that I go away. So let's unpack that. What does it mean when he says, it's to your advantage? We get to read this from a recognition of the vantage point we have now as Christ crucified and risen and reigning and the Holy Spirit being active and present on the earth and with us. And so I want to give you some things that Jesus was hinting at that these guys were going to learn. And so part of today is we get to learn this word and we get to learn this truth through, through a perspective that it's already happening while we're learning about the disciples who are in process of seeing it happen. Does that make sense? Are you, are you with me? That was a little confusing, but you with me? Okay, so it's to your advantage. What did Jesus mean by that? Well, first of all, there's a personal advantage. That being him going away and sending the helper means that we are invited into uninterrupted fellowship with God uninterrupted fellowship with God. We don't have to share God with any other person. We don't have to do a time slot. We don't have to make an appointment. Um, we don't have to, to let him, you know, have some face time with everybody else. And Jesus, while fully God, as we know, John chapter one tells us, but also fully human, fully human, he couldn't be everywhere at once. He couldn't be involved with everybody equally and consistently and constantly while he was on planet earth. He could not do that. He was limited even though he was God, to being a human, willingly, sacrificially, humbly making himself a human. And he's like, guys, y'all have already had a, a spat over who gets to sit on my right and on my left. Like this has already kind of happened. If you know anything about his interactions with the disciples, he'd had multiple conversations where they had been like, who's the greatest, you know, or who gets to sit at your right and who gets to sit at your left. And he's like, if I go away, it's to your advantage because everyone will have equal access Everyone will have equal access. There will not be a, a flow chart or an org chart. There will not be the holiest of people and the lowliest of people. Like everyone has equal access to uninterrupted fellowship with God. And then secondly, there's no pilgrimage needed. Now, the reason I put that in there is if you think about Christianity in contrast with other world religions, one of the big staples in many world religions is that at some point, there is a pilgrimage taken to a holy place. Well, the Holy Spirit is actually a promise that the pilgrimage didn't happen from us to God, but from God to us. Like there's no pilgrimage needed at the basis of our faith that we get to walk in the assurance that the Holy One, God, in spirit form, lives in us. So that's our personal advantage. And I could go on. That's just two. We could, we could go on and we're going to get into more. It's going to lead us into truth. We're going to get there. It comes up in a little bit. Um, and that part of that is from that un uninterrupted fellowship. We could make 50 bullet points that are, that are invitations to us out of an uninterrupted fellowship with the Lord. But I just want to give you those two, uninterrupted fellowship and no pilgrimage necessary. And then the global advantage answers the question is, what is God doing in the world? What's God doing in the world? Well, 
before what he was doing in the world was limited to the streets of Jerusalem. With Jesus, it was limited to the places that he was, whether it was Galilee or, or Capernaum or Jerusalem, and that's what God was doing. In fact, you would see people request his presence in other towns, and, and as he would move around the countryside, and crowds would start together and start to follow, almost like pilgrimage to him, as we talked about earlier. And so the question of what is God doing in the world is now much greater and much more astutely answered in the fact that he can be everywhere at the same time, all the time, and he's constantly up to things in our world. In fact, uh, a guy that we got to listen to this week had this quote about the Holy Spirit's ministry. He said, the Holy Spirit's ministry is not just a general, awe-inspiring power, but it's Christ-glorifying power, particularly Christ-crucified and Christ-resurrected to the ends of the earth. That that's happening on planet earth right now everywhere. Somewhere, someone's going to sleep currently praying in accord with the Holy Spirit. And there are people gathered in the United States waking up, praying, living their life in accord with the Holy Spirit and getting ready to live life on mission, glorifying him and being transformed into his image simultaneously all across the planet because that's what the Holy Spirit is up to. The Holy Spirit indicates that there is good news for the whole world. You know, Jesus's ministry was about a proclamation of that, but the Holy Spirit's voice is louder than just Christ's voice because Christ's voice was limited to what was in earshot, and the Holy Spirit's voice fills every person that follows him and gives them the opportunity to proclaim and declare the goodness of God. The Holy Spirit dwelling within us is a huge recognition um, that, that proximity is not what changes people. Proximity to Jesus is not what changes people. If Jesus thought that people could be transformed by proximity, then the thing he would have done is to clone himself and send himself to you know, all the ends of the earth. But what he did was he empowered us and, and with an indwelling Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8 says that we are filled with the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead. Like the exact same spirit that raised Christ from the dead lives in us. He lives in us. And so our flourishing is not dependent on our proximity to Christ. Our flourishing is dependent upon a transformation and a new birth happening within us on the inside. Kurt tells us all the time, he's told us all the time as he's preached through John 2. So I'm going to steal a line from his that Jesus in the flesh taught us about God from the outside in. And the Holy Spirit teaches us about our relationship with God from the inside out. Transformation and new birth starts to happen on the inside, which is why he knew something about this helper, this paraclete in the Greek that he invites us to know. And so he says these things. What was it Jesus is teaching us? We go to the next slide. It says, he will convict the world. He will convict the world. Now, sometimes we, we, when I hear the word convict, I think of like really strong beliefs. You know, like I have a strong conviction. You know, I have a strong conviction that, you know, um, peas are bad. You shouldn't eat peas. They're not any good. You know, like I have a strong conviction that, you know, you should open the door for um, like a, a lady as she walks into a room, you know, or walks into a building. Like I have a strong conviction. You know, you can go on and on and on about different convictions that we have. But if I think of the word conviction as less of a strong belief and as more of evidence that it would take to convict someone of a crime, have you ever thought of it that way? So, so instead of use conviction as a strong belief, think of conviction in a courtroom sense. If someone's convicted of a crime, what is required for that conviction to take place? Well, it's evidence beyond a 
reasonable doubt, right? Like it's evidence beyond a reasonable doubt. And so when, when John here, by the direction of the Holy Spirit, is quoting Jesus, what Jesus is saying is he will convict the world. Now, he doesn't mean he will give the world really strong beliefs. What he means is he will provide sure and certain, beyond reasonable doubt, absolute rock solid, you can take to the bank evidence of the Holy Spirit's interaction in the world. You with me? So he will convict the world. And he says this in verse in verse 8. He says, when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And then he kind of explains all these concerning sin, because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you see me no longer, and concerning judgment, because the ruler of the world is coming. So let's maybe think of the word convict a little less and think of the word convince a little more. He will convince the world concerning sin, concerning righteousness, and concerning judgment. Now let's unpack these three beliefs. Let's unpack these three beliefs. Concerning sin. Concerning sin. Notice that it doesn't say that he will convict the world by condemning every person's sin in the person. He actually doesn't do that. Now, if you think about Jesus' incarnation, like he didn't show up and hang out among people that were his best friends. If you read the Bible, it says that he showed up and plopped down on planet Earth among a ton of enemies. Among a, among a ton of people that were helpless and harassed like sheep without a shepherd. Among a ton of people who were dead in their trespasses and sins. Like, we look at ourselves now and like, of course Jesus would want to hang out with us. Like, we're pretty cool. But the reality is, he didn't plop down. He didn't like parachute into planet Earth among his best friends that were giving him high fives. Like, he parachuted. He became incarnate in planet Earth among people that's whole life was actually in total opposition to him. Total and complete opposition. And he was like, I'm going to show you, I'm going to convince you, I'm going to convict you of a sin that you're putting your belief in the wrong thing. And so the first thing I would say is concerning these three specifics, he will convict the world of sin, of, of specifically the sin of unbelief. It isn't just in salvation. Now, it also is in salvation. I want to touch on that, but it's not just limited to salvation. The initial convincing of unbelief is to see Jesus as beautiful and to see his work for you as a supreme act of love, or the supreme act of love. It's to pull back the veil. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul talks about how that every person is veiled in their understanding. There is a distortion. There is a lack of clarity of being able to see Jesus as pure and beautiful and holy and, and righteous. And, and that every single person that's ever born because of the sin nature that they're born into can't see with clarity who Jesus is. And that the Holy Spirit, in line with our salvation, pulls that veil back so that we can see him with clarity. Now, let me give you a real-world experience or a real-life experience as to what that might look or feel like for us to acknowledge. You might be around a lot of noise about Christianity, but I hope in your life you have a testimony that what the pastor or what your friend or, or what someone that was ministering to you or what a family member was saying to you went less, went from less of like Charlie Brown's teacher, like wah, 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 wah. You know, like I'm just kind of, around this, this feels good, this community looks exciting, that music, they are talented, like less of, of this general recognition of like, oh, there's something cool happening there. Those seem like nice people. I should hang out with them. I don't think that they will lead me astray. And more of, oh my gosh, Jesus did that for me. 
Like, that's what I'm talking about, the veil kind of being pulled by. Oh, my gosh, that, that was for me, that, that good news that they've been talking about. He, he really did see me in the depths of my sin and save me from there. Oh, my gosh, I can't believe I can now see with clarity the face of Jesus Christ and the glory of who he is. That's what I'm talking about, with the light bulb going off, a moment where your heart is compelled and, and, and fueled to see Jesus as beautiful. That's the first initial act of the Holy Spirit raising belief in your dead heart, or as Ezekiel would say, exchanging within you a heart of stone for a beating heart of flesh that the maker of creation is holding and pulsing into life into your chest. That's what I'm talking about. Now, I don't know if you've had that moment or not. C.S. Lewis talks about it on a a bus, you know, where he gets on a bus and a believer and gets off one and he's like, whoa, I feel like I've met with the living God. Or a moment that maybe a line in a song or, or a sermon or a conversation with a friend or a family member or just you reading the Bible and something jumping off the page and speaking to your heart. Oh my gosh, this is true. Don't you see this? And you start to see Jesus is beautiful. That's the initial convincing of unbelief. And some of you here today have never done that. Some of you here today think that if you just get in the flow of the stream, like this is what takes you to heaven. No, it doesn't. The flow of the stream of good Christian community does not take you to heaven or does not lead to reconciliation with the Father, but a confession of your heart that Jesus is Lord of your life because of his sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection to new new life. That is what ushers you in. I've heard it said before, sometimes we think that good people go to heaven. Good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people go to heaven. Forgiven people have a right standing relationship with Jesus. So for the first time, some of you today may need to agree in an initial belief to Jesus, to see him as beautiful, to see him as treasurable, to see him as worth cherishing. But if you're already on a journey with Christ, if you've been on one for some time, I want you to know the Holy Spirit is still convincing you of unbelief. He's still battling unbelief in your life and in mine. He's convicting the world of the sin of unbelief, even the Christ followers. He is continually exposing what we tend to believe or put our trust in that cannot sustain and cannot save us. In fact, in Romans chapter 8, it says that the mind that's of the flesh and that's set on the things of the flesh is hostile to God. It cannot please the Lord. Let me tell you how in my personal life, how I've dealt with that the most. Maybe this is, I would say this is 2019 reflection. This is really like last decade reflection. Is that I'll be, you know, chugging along in my life or in my journey and I'll come to a barricade or I'll come to an obstacle or I'll come to uh, a date of maybe even an emotional weight or emotional overwhelming. And my tendency is to grit my teeth and plow through it. Anybody else ever do that? I just got to get through this. That doesn't sound like much dependence on the Spirit to me. That sounds like a lot of, okay, Andrew, you know the right things to say. You know the right things to do. You've done this before. It's repeat the formula, grin and bear it, grit your teeth, put your head down, go to work, and push through it. Now, what I think the Holy Spirit would love to convince me of is he's got a better way to get through it. He already knows. We just sang the song. Like, there's another in the fire with us. Like, he already knows the best way through whatever obstacle or whatever suffering or whatever trial or whatever frustration or whatever depression or whatever anxiety I'm facing. He already knows that. And he wouldn't say, actually, you know, Andrew, what I need from you is to just get stronger. He would never say that. 
He would say, actually, what I need from you, Andrew, is to posture yourself with a recognition that I know the way. I, this valley of the shadow of death is no big deal for me. My rod and my staff, they comfort you. I'm a good shepherd. Won't you follow me through? And so those who operate by the flesh or from a belief in ourselves, in fact, if we read Romans 8 to be true, cannot please God. But only those whose belief, or as the author of Hebrews would say, whose faith is in their life, is, is it possible to please him? Hebrews eleven six says, without faith, it's impossible to please the Lord. So you're really good problem solving aside from faith in Jesus, doesn't please God at all. Like your conflict resolution skills, they don't please God at all. Your faith in the living God is the only formula that pleases him. And the good news is, is when you think you don't have enough, he gives you more. The good news is, is that when he says in the gospels, is you don't even need much. In fact, just the amount of a mustard seed. And the good news is, is that we have a helper that is absolutely committed absolutely committed to our belief and to point out our misguided trust and to call us into kindness and gentle repentance to come back home. Righteousness, second one, because I go to the Father. Do you know who goes to the Father? People that belong there. People that belong to God go to God. And so when Jesus says, I'm here to convince the world of righteousness because I go to the Father, what he's saying is there's a select certain few or there's a select character of those that get to go to the Father. And they are the holy and the righteous and the blameless and the true. And in fact, if you think about like what this meant to the disciples, they started thinking back to kind of the, uh, the heroes of the faith, the ones that had access to the Father. And Jesus is actually saying, I'm not just like them, I'm actually the better version of them. And I'm going to go on to the Father myself. Um, you might be tempted to believe that my accusers that are saying that I'm a heretic or my accusers, this would be from Jesus, my accusers that are saying that, that I'm a blasphemer or my accusers that are saying that I'm a criminal, you might be tempted to believe that they're right. But just hang on because you're going to see me float to the heavens. <laughs> Hang on, you're going to see me vanish as I ascend into heaven. Hang on, you're going to see me go to the place that I belong. And so in this moment, he's saying the helper is going to come to reinforce and convince you that you're not following a considerate or socially conscious moral leader. You are following a righteous and perfect savior of the world. That's what the Holy Spirit will come to do. Because if we're just left to Jesus, if, 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 if the, his death was the end, it's like, oh, his, his principles were still good. We should still like practice some of those things. He's compassionate. And I think he wants to debunk this and say, well, know what the Holy Spirit's going to do? It's going to convince you that you, you're not just following like good teaching here. Like you, you're following a risen and reigning Savior who belongs with the Father. And then lastly, judgment, that the ruler of the world is judged that the ruler of the world is judged. Oh, what a profound truth that is that we need convincing of. What a profound truth. The one that torments you, the one that lies, the one that distorts truth, the one that ensnares and trips you up, the one that fosters doubt and anxiety and despair and hopelessness, he is judged guilty of all those things at the cross. And the Holy Spirit himself would actually later encourage the Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 2 to say, and you, who were dead in your trespasses and sins, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our sins by canceling the record of debt that stood against us and, and its legal demands. And he set this aside and he nailed it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them into open shame 
by triumphing over them. That the work of the Holy Spirit is going to remind you that Jesus came to battle the sin of your unbelief. He came to remind you of his righteousness. And he came to remind you that you live in a world where the enemy thinks he has power, but in reality, it's on borrowed time. He is a lame duck leader on planet Earth. That he is judged, that his head has been crushed, and that one day he will get to, he will get to spend an eternity that he deserves. It's the perpetual recognition of Psalm 23, that God, through the work of Jesus, the Holy Spirit would remind us that through the work and because of the work of Jesus, that a constant table is prepared for us in the presence of an evil one that prowls this earth, looking to devour and looking to destroy. But fear not, because the gospel of hospitality that we've been offered, we started as enemies, we were called friends, and we're invited to dine in the presence of an evil one that is judged guilty over and over and over again. The Holy Spirit would remind you, works to remind you, of a better offer, of a better offer that we don't follow a wise moral sage, but a righteous savior that fully disarmed the enemy and has defeated death. Now, this week we were at the Passion Conference in Atlanta with 70, close to 70,000 young people, college students, young people. And I sat beside um, Jordan Miller from our church at one moment. We were, we were like debriefing, walking through like some of the experience and she was just kind of shaking her head and said to me, death must be scared to death right now. Like it would be terrible. It would be terrifying to be death right now. Like this room, which is so on fire with just a, a passion and a joy in the things of the Lord, it must be terrifying to be death. And that's exactly what the Holy Spirit would love to remind you. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? It must be terrifying to be you. So we move on from the text. We move on. Verse 12, you aren't Ready for them now is what he says. I'm going to teach you some things that you're not ready for now. And basically what he means is it's taken three years for you to get um, my power on earth. It's going to take the rest of your life for you to understand what the Holy Spirit is trying to birth and bring to awareness in the rest of your mortal lives. And so he says you're not going to be able to bear these right now. Their ability to understand is going to take a transformation internally that we've talked about with the Holy Spirit internally transforming us for them to understand all the truths of who God is as they continue to go, which I think is why we see, you see like the book of Acts be the birth of the church and it's birth on such a, a, a almost like a low bar recognition of, un, of just, hey, just simp, simple belief. Like I believe Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, like I believe. And then the rest of the Bible are, are these faithful apostles and faithful teachers that are writing letters like unpacking huge truths that maybe weren't necessary for salvation, but certainly in line with what it means to flourish. Have you ever thought about that? Like some of the deepest, you know, depths of scripture that you find in, in theological frameworks and doctrinal truths that you see in Ephesians and Galatians and Colossians and Romans, like every single one of those letters is written to believers that don't know this stuff. You ever notice that? Every single one of those letters is written to the faithful ones. Now, that doesn't give us a pass on saying that's not important. I just want to focus on what it means to believe because we have the whole counsel of God and the Spirit would invite us into the wholeness of his truth for us to be able to see these beautiful doctrinal truths about Jesus. But, but as we see the gospel unfold in the New Testament, you see it started a place of belief, but the Holy Spirit say, I'm still teaching. I'm still teaching. Amen. I'm still putting things in place. 
I'm still putting things in motion for you to understand, for you to walk in. Paul refers to it as a mystery that hadn't been revealed to the saints, but it's now revealed to you. He says this multiple times in Colossians, in Ephesians, of, of what it looks like to walk in the truth of who God is and what he's doing in your life and what he seeks to do in the world. And so that's what makes this next little bit perfect for us is that Jesus says, I'm gonna give you a better teacher than what I can be in, in verse 12 and 13. I'm gonna give you, I still have many things to say to you, but when the spirit of truth comes in verse 13, he will guide you into all truth for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare these things to you that are to come. So he, in verse 13, he says, he will guide you into all truth. Now, what truth is he talking about? The word truth in the New Testament, it's going to be up on the screen, is the word aletheia. You'll see it behind me. It's the Greek word aletheia. Now, if you know anything about language, if you know anything about linguistics, um, you know that the prefix a is a negative. It's a negation. So, let me see. I mean, I know it's the start of the year. We haven't really kicked school back up yet. So, let's see if our thinking caps are on today, okay? So, so passion, the word passion in English is, is the Greek word pathos. Are you with me? This is going to really connect for you in a second. I feel it. Um, what's the opposite of passion? Anybody? Apathy. So what do you think apathy is in, in Greek? Uh, pathos. You got it? Does that make sense? So pathos is passion. Apathy is apathos. So the A, anytime you see an A at the front of a Greek word, it's a negative. It's a prefix A. It's a negative. So it means the opposite of. Right? So passion, pathos, the opposite of passion, apathos, apathy. So the word aletheia starts with a prefix A, a negation. Starts with a negative. Starts with a recognition of, I have it there, A slash lethia. It's really from the word, the root word lanthano. But, but what it means is to be like what lethia or lanthano in its, in its actual roots, not like, you know, a cognitive. I can't think of the word, conjugation um, of the verb form, but, but what it actually means is to, re, is to be um, concealed or to be buried. <laughs> to be concealed or to be buried is lanthano or lathea. And so the opposite, alathea, means what? Life. To not be concealed, to be fully revealed, and to not be buried. Are you with me? Isn't it funny that Jesus says, I am the... Way the aletheia, I am not buried. I am not the concealed one. I am not the covered up one. Like I am fully revealed. I remember teaching this to a group of international students one night. Justin Luttrell had a, had a group of international students at his house and they called their Bible study aletheia because it was these, they were these students from different faith backgrounds and they were all coming on a search for truth. And we happened to just be there one night as we were in John 14, and we were talking about Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And I was like, hey, you know, it's funny. Like, your Bible study is literally called aletheia, which means truth. Do you know what that word means? And, of course, all these students are, like, way smarter than me. They speak, speak like, four languages. I speak one language. And I start to tell them what this word means. And I'm saying, you know, hey, when, when Jesus says I am aletheia, what he's really proclaiming is I am the can't be buried one. Like I am the, you can't hold me down one. Like I am the, you can't conceal me or I am the fully revealed one. That's what his declaration is. And I start to say that and all of a sudden I hear this. And this young man named Eli, who's from Kazakhstan, starts slow clapping like the meme on the guy from Rudy. You know, like, 
and he, and he stands up and he's clapping and he's like, I have never heard this before. I have never heard this. He wasn't even a believer at the time. He's like, I have never heard this before. I have never heard this before. I have been searching for truth. And you just told me that it is nothing is concealed in Jesus. That's what the Holy Spirit does to do in our life is to guide us into all truth. No longer concealed, no longer buried, fully revealed. Now, what truth does he guide us into? I'm going to try to speed through this next little bit to be aware of some time. We were at this conference this week, and there was a song that was sung this week. Many of you have heard before called um, Worthy of Your Name. Some of you guys have heard that before. I'm going to put um, the lyrics from a bridge in that song up on the screen. You might have heard it. I'm not going to try to sing it. I'll leave that part to Kurt for another day. Um, But the, the bridge speaks, you're my author, my maker, my ransom, my savior, my refuge, and my hiding place. You're my helper, my healer, my blessed redeemer, my answer, and my saving grace. You're my hope in the shadows, my strength in the battle, my anchor for all my days. And you stood by my side, and you stood in my place, Jesus, no other name. That's truth. But here's what the Holy Spirit would like to invite you into, that he authors you. He authored you. He wrote your name into existence. He did it the moment that you were conceived. And he not only wrote your name into existence, he wrote your value into existence. I remember leaving, um, you've heard me talk at length about um, my story over the last three or four years and and my brother-in-law that passed away from um, lymphoma at an early age. And I remember in the late days, if you've ever had someone in the late days of cancer, you know they're hard. You know how hard they are. And Tom loved Jesus and he was ready to, he was ready to spend eternity with Jesus. Um, and I remember being over there, it was just me and him one day and he could barely speak and he was really struggling for words and he was embarrassed because of, he, he had a number of like ostomy bags and, and all this stuff and couldn't control himself. And it was just, it was shameful for him. He felt ashamed. He, was, he, he wasn't himself at all. And I remember getting on Leastown Road and yelling at my windshield, which I made out to be God, okay? Like yelling at the Lord in my car, I'm okay if you don't save him. I'm okay if you don't save him. But don't take his dignity like this. Like just take him home. Like don't do this to him. Like, I'm okay, I am living at the reality that you might not save his physical life on earth, that he he might be healed eternally and get to spend eternity with you. God, I am cool with that. But please do not do this to his value and his dignity. And as if the Lord had like a Bluetooth speaker call into my car, okay? Now, I don't think he audibly spoke in my car to where the people outside on the street could hear it. You know, like you ever do that? You, talk, you can hear like somebody's conversation because they're like yelling on their Bluetooth and they don't realize it. But I felt in my heart the reverberation of the Spirit of God say, Andrew, are you concerned with Tom not knowing his value because he is getting ready to see how valuable he is? If I left the place he's coming for him, he's getting ready to know how valuable he is. When I say that he is your author, and he spoke you into existence, and he wrote you into existence, and he's your maker, that there is unbelievable intrinsic value in you. He's your ransom and your savior. He ransoms and saves you. You were bought, you were purchased, and there's no going back to once what once imprisoned and in fact 
killed you. You can run to him. You can learn from him. You can seek shelter in him as a refuge and a hiding place. He doesn't leave you helpless. He's a perfect helper for you. He doesn't leave you unwell. He's your your hope in the shadows, your strength in the battle, your helper, your healer. He's your blessed redeemer. Every redemption story finds its origin in Jesus. He is the answer, the truth, the yes, and the amen to every question and every promise. He's the perpetual waterfall of grace. He is your sure and steady hope in the darkest times. He is strength for us in every battle, and he anchors us daily lest we drift away. For he is both beside us in every suffering, but also in our place so that we never have to endure an eternal one. But church, he stands with us and stands for us, and there is no other name. And the Holy Spirit would love to not just convict you of that, but to convince you that he could be found convicted of being these things for us. But friends, we don't get their biological recognition or mental agreement, we get there by a Holy Spirit that's committed to reveal those truths to our hearts along the way. In fact, I have this verse up there in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all with unveiled face, as I talked about earlier, beholding the glory of the God are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit of God. And this is kind of the conclusion that we have. In fact, How do you know the absolute role of the Holy Spirit? Jesus says it. This is one of the most mic drop lines in the entire New Testament for me. Jesus says, how you know the Spirit? Verse 14, he will glorify me. He will glorify me. You want to put to test what it means to hear the voice of the Spirit in your life? Who does it glorify? Does it glorify you? Does it glorify people? Does it glorify... um, Something that's, that's, you know, tangible on this earth, or does it glorify the Lord? One of my favorite authors, a guy that I had to read a lot in seminary, is a guy named J.I. Packer. And I'm going to read a part of a quote, and then we're going to put um, the, the last part up, uh, up there as, as well. But, but he has a quote, because he was, he was walking to preach at a church, um, and he was wondering about an illustration to talk about the Holy Spirit, and he arrived on this one. And so this is going to be how we, how we end. It says this, J.I. Packer. I remember walking to church one winter evening to preach on the words, he shall glorify me from John John 16. Seeing the building lit by a floodlight as I turned the corner and realizing this was exactly the illustration my message needed. When floodlighting is done well, the floodlights are placed so that you do not see them. You are not in fact supposed to see where the light is coming from. What you are meant to see is just the building on which the floodlights are trained. The intended effect is to make visible Make it visible when it otherwise would not be seen for the darkness and to maximize its dignity by throwing all its details into relief so that you see it properly. And I think the, the verse will come up or the rest of the quote will come up. This perfectly illustrates the Spirit's new covenant role. This perfectly illustrates the Spirit's new covenant role. He is, so to speak, the hidden floodlight shining on the Savior. Or think of it this way. It is as if the Spirit stands behind us, throwing light over our shoulder onto Jesus, who stands always facing us. The Spirit's message is never, look at me, listen to me, come to me, or get to know me, but it's always, look at him and see his glory. Listen to him 
and hear his word. Go to him and have life and get to know him and taste his gift of joy and peace for eternity. If you're wondering what the Holy Spirit's up to in the world, it is always and perpetually standing up and shouting and kicking and clapping and doing cartwheels and doing jumps for joy to celebrate the glory of Jesus. And all this, friends, is for you. So you can be made and transformed into his image and into his likeness. As we conclude some questions for us today to reflect, what are you being convinced of by the Holy Spirit? Convicted, convinced, kind of the same word. What are you being convinced of by the Holy Spirit? How is the Holy Spirit urging you to battle unbelief? When we put up those things, author, maker, and helper, sustainer, and ransom and savior, refuge, hiding place, do you feel like oh, that's all true? Do you feel like he's all those things for you? How is he urging you to battle unbelief? And how can Christ be glorified in your midst today? And as we move to a time of communion, I'm going to pitch the communion moment to some friends of ours that are actually in a place Jesus once was um, so that we can understand that we live in a place now that the Holy Spirit perpetually is. And so uh, please go to the screens as Justin and Brian invite us into communion today. And then at the conclusion of this, if you will just stand um, and respond, whether it's in giving or in coming to the table or in praying with one another, take, eat, and remember and participate in his body and blood broken and shed for you.